Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore a good old-fashioned haunted castle and how a gang of ghost hunters from the press uncovered a tale of a ghostly visitor who might have met a very gruesome end as the last person to be sentenced to death at the nearby gallows. Now, to begin at the beginning. In 1895, in the town of Carmarthen, which, as you may or may not know, is the birthplace of the Arthurian wizard Merlin. Its Welsh name, Caerverthin, means Merlin's fort, and as such, it's a very mystical place. And reports of ghosts and goblins had long been sighted in and around the area. But at the end of the 19th century, when all of these old superstitions were fading away in these rational times, a newspaper reporter who'd been covering his patch for quite some time, I'm assuming, got quite excited when the opportunity to go and explore a supposedly haunted location, just like he did in the old days, presented itself. And in the introduction to a newspaper article, he recalled some of the spooks and spectres who used to haunt the area in the good old days. And it goes like this. In old times, nearly every venerable mansion had its ghosts. But ghosts are now getting very scarce. Fifty years ago, if not at a later period... A male ghost used to be seen around the grounds of Astrad. Among those who saw it was the late Mr. John Davis, who had twice the doubtful pleasure. We have all heard of the dark gentleman who, after the death of Betty Sia the witch, used to visit the cottage in which she formerly lived on the roadside. The old people of Carmarthen all remember Tyr Bucky, a house which stood on or near the site of the present Longacre Villa and the female ghost who loved to frequent that place and the lane leading up to Cum Oirnant. But all these ghosts have apparently retired from public life and even Greencastle on the Llan Stefan Road, once so famous for its un earthly visitants appears to know them no more. So that's a wonderful little way to kick off this episode, a roundup of all the local ghosts in Carmarthen that this reporter was aware of. And it is the last ghosts he mentioned, the unearthly visitants of Greencastle on Van Stefan Road, which seemingly have disappeared, that concern us on this episode. But before we dive into those spine-chilling tales, I should first explain the name, because Greencastle's correct Welsh name is Castell Moyle. Moyle, M-O-E-L, Castell Moyle. 
But in the Victorian press, it has been anglicised to Greencastle, and I might switch back and forth between the two on this episode. If it's me talking, it's Castell Moyle. If it's a quote from one of the newspaper articles, it will probably be Greencastle, but they are both the same place. Now, to return to this reporter, the reason he is reminiscent about these ghosts and the ghosts of Castell Moyle in particular is because an old engraving, an image of the castle from many years before has been brought to his attention. And a very quick shameless plug alert, but if you would like to see that engraving, I did include a reproduction in my book, Ghosts of Wales accounts from the Victorian archives. But you'll be glad to know you don't need to see it. You don't need to rush out and buy my book because the reporter describes it for us. And he tells us that the engraving shows the castle in a state of ruin. Not very different from its present condition. Its present condition, of course, in 1895. Although some parts of the wall have since fallen in. So it is getting a little bit worse for wear between when this engraving was made and 1895. Now, along with the ruin of a castle, on one side is a row of trees running westward. And on the opposite side, running in a contrary direction, is a wall with the top battlemented. In the background behind the castle is a glimpse of Carmarthen and the many windings of the Towie, which appear, by the way, to be rather exaggerated. And by Towie, if you are unfamiliar with the area, he is referring to the River Towie, which appears to be rather exaggerated, and it bears several full-rigged yachts on its waters. In the distance, the Tower of St. Peter's Church and Carmarthen Bridge with seven arches are plainly delineated. And people say the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, this was engraved, I don't know, 100 years or whatever it is beforehand. And he's saying not much has really changed between then and the late Victorian times. And if you were to visit Carmarthen today, you would more than likely cross that same landmark bridge and see that church in the town. But back to this engraving, and it does present us with this idyllic if exaggerated depiction of the castle. Boats bobbing away on the water, landmarks dotted in the background, and it has to be said there's nothing particularly spooky about it. At which point you might be thinking, why the heck are you going on and on about this engraving on a ghost podcast if there's nothing spooky about it? Well, there are on closer inspection hints of the gothic about it. It is a ruin, a romantic ruin. It does have these sublime views. There is nothing seemingly living inside, save for the ivy, that wonderfully atmospheric, it's almost a compulsory piece of decoration for any gothic ruin. The ivy is growing over all the exposed stonework. It's engulfing the stonework. Nature is taking back its own. And also in the foreground, we have some trees that, if not dead, are certainly leafless and they are not 
flourishing with life, let's say. And I think if this engraving had been sketched at night time rather than the daytime as it is, but with the moon in the sky and shadows all around, then it would have a totally different effect. It would look like the perfect setting for a spine-chilling ghost story. And it is under those conditions that our reporters are going to investigate this historic site. But for now, it is still daytime, just like in the engraving. It's still daytime, and the reporter, inspired by what he's seen, and with a longing to rediscover these ghost stories of old, as mentioned, does exactly what I used to do during my time as a reporter, which did, as it turns out, include some ghost hunts in Carmarthenshire, although sadly not to Castell Moyle. He gets a team together, and they go on an after-dark ghost hunt in what they call Green Castle. And to quote, he tells us of his preparations. The twilight hour was chosen in order to give the outing as much of a ghostly character as possible. So they've chosen to go at night purely for spooky reasons, not for any scientific reasons, for any journalistic reasons, purely because it is spooky. And they start their investigations by speaking to the man in charge there. A Mr. Jones, we are told, whose family has occupied the place for several generations. And by all accounts, he was very happy to see the reporters. Very welcoming. He received them kindly, we are told. And with his permission, a Miss Hart was allowed to give them a tour to show them around the old castle, which, to quote, is much larger than it looks from the road, without speaking of the outstanding fragments of wall, proving that it was originally a good deal more extensive than would appear at present. So the ruins that have been described don't really do it justice. This thing was quite a sizable space at one point. But they've arrived, they're exploring. Miss Hart has given them a tour, shown them around. So far, so good. The only thing they haven't seen, and it's the whole reason they're there, is a ghost. And I get the impression they are they are tiptoeing around the subject. This is a time, of course, when people don't believe in all that silly ghost stuff, so they can't just blurt out with it. But we are told they are encouraged by Mr. Jones's kindness. He's been so good to them that eventually one of the visitors, just before leaving, ventured to ask him if the ghosts had quite forsaken the old place? Had they all gone for good? Well, evidently, Mr. Jones, for all the weight of his 89 years, retains not only a good deal of manly vigour, but a considerable sense of humour as well. So he is far from annoyed that the press are sticking their nose in and asking him about potential ghosts in this castle. He sees the funny side of it, and we are told his eye twinkled as he smilingly confessed to having heard the old stories. But he did not plead guilty to having met 
any ghosts in his own time. So, yes, he'd heard the old stories, yes, he was happy to talk about it, but in all his years, and at 89 years, he'd seen quite a few years, and had seen nothing paranormal himself. And if that were the end of the investigation, it would be quite a rubbish ghost story. But fear not, because there were two people there for the journalists to talk to. And as well as Mr. Jones, there was Miss Hart. And Miss Hart, we are told, was a little more explicit. And the tale that she told them wasn't just some old legend they could laugh about and put in a newspaper, but it's one that led them directly to somebody alive and well in Carmarthen at the time who could shed more light on at least one, if not two, of these ghostly visitants at the castle. And she recalled that she had heard of an old gentleman in a three cornered hat who appeared there in the early days of the present century so in the early 1800s this ghost appeared to a female domestic she believed it was in the time of mr jones's uncle whose name we believe was david thomas and this was probably as far back as the battle of waterloo and the Battle of Waterloo was in 1815. So we're looking at around 1815. A female domestic saw this old gentleman with a three-cornered hat. And it just so happened that one of the other reporters recalled that one of the old men in town who had helped him out in the past. Now, his name isn't given, unfortunately. He's just referred to as the old inhabitant but the old inhabitant mentioned that his mother had been a servant at the castle at the time and he might be the right person to go and speak to about this because it might have been his mother who saw the ghost and when they suggested this to miss hart she agreed that yes she thinks it was his mother but before they could go off and track down the old inhabitant, she gave them a little bit more detail. She led them into an ancient kitchen where there was an immense open fireplace with a sort of settle, that's, that's a wooden bench, on each side. And she pointed out where the servant was sitting up late one night with a lover who had come to see her and told how, on looking out, into the middle of the room, both saw the gentleman in his out-of-date attire, including the three-cornered hat. So not only did this domestic see this ghost, on one occasion it was also seen by her lover as well, although this lover is not described as old inhabitants father so i am guessing there is no connection between old inhabitant and this lover but frankly it's none of my business who this lover was i'm just researching the ghost stories not their love lives and so that brings us to the end of that little tour and while the gang went away having not seen a ghost they had been told a rather fascinating story 
which gave them some leads to follow up and who knows what they might find out afterwards. And so, having returned to Carmarthen, the ghost hunters thought it incubant on them to glean all of the particulars which Old Inhabitant could supply. So they tracked him down and his story was to this effect. He had often heard of the servant and her lover who saw the ghost at Greencastle. And while he couldn't be sure that it was his mother, his mother was this girl, he did think it might have been so. And though his mother never told him that she was the person, his mother was indeed a servant at Greencastle as far back as 1817. So technically we are two years out here from the Battle of Waterloo, but it wasn't specific. If this was seen at around the time of the Battle of Waterloo, and we know she was definitely there in 1817 at least, again, there is a good chance it was his mother. And regardless whether it was his mother or not, either way, his mother did have an interesting account which adds yet another layer to this mystery. And he recalls that, the old inhabitant recalls that his mother once told him a tale that she had been told by the current owner, Mr. Jones's mother. So Mrs. Jones, back in the day, told old inhabitant's mother that she had also seen the man on several occasions and always dressed in exactly the same way. So it's quite a few witnesses now who all claim to have seen this man with a three-cornered hat. And we are no longer just talking about the servants. If there was some kind of class element to these ghostly sightings, this man is being seen by the people, by the servants right at the bottom to the owners right at the top. And the old inhabitant continues to say that the man, or ghost, always wore a three-cornered hat, a swallow-tailed coat with a profusion of buttons on it, apparently silver buttons, knee breeches, silk stockings, and shoes with silver buckles. So very much a man dressed in period costume, or a period from before the late 1800s, the turn of the 19th century when Old Inhabitant was talking. And he also recalls that one day Mrs. Jones was making bread when, looking up, she saw the man, the man, the ghost, the three-cornered hat man, leaning against the pillar in the middle of the kitchen. Recognising her ghostly visitor, Mrs. Jones walked out of the kitchen and when she looked in at the door a moment afterwards when she turned back to see what was going on he was gone he had seemingly vanished into thin air and then it gets even stranger because a second ghostly visitor appeared to another family member to quote miss thomas a sister of Mrs. Jones slept in a bed over the staircase and one night when the room was so flooded 
with Moonlight. And I was talking earlier about making it sound like a work of gothic fiction. Now it does. She's in this castle. The room is flooded with moonlight. So much so that every object was distinctly visible. Miss Thomas was surprised to see a very beautiful lady, handsomely dressed and wearing on her neck, which was quite bare, a lovely necklace. She had a lot of jewellery about her person. At first, the thought of an unearthly visitor did not occur to Miss Thomas at all. She thought some fine lady must have called and entered her room by mistake. And, you know, if she's half asleep, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. She assumed it was just a real person, a real posh person, dressed in all this finery who had just walked in. But... In a few minutes, however, she was startled to find that the mysterious lady, who never spoke, vanished like morning mist. Nothing more astonished Miss Thomas than the fact that she felt quite unable to speak while the visitor was in the room. So as a result of seeing this finely dressed woman, she was frozen in in fright. Well, maybe not in fright, but certainly frozen in the sense that she could not utter a word herself and neither did her visitor before vanishing like morning mist. Now, rumours about these ghosts began to spread around the town, around Carmarthen which is probably when the press first began to pick up on them. Our main reporter was bemoaning the fact these ghosts had all disappeared by the end of the 19th century. But earlier in the 1800s, rumours began to spread. And as a result, Mrs Jones began to find it very difficult to find servants who had sufficient courage to remain at Greencastle. And old inhabitant's mother received a pound or 30 shillings, which we are told was a great consideration in those days. She received a pound or 30 shillings over the usual wages paid to servants at the time. And money wasn't the only reason she stayed on, because we are told having plenty of nerve, she was afraid of nothing. And as to the lack of ghosts, as to the fact that this gang from the press could find nothing when they visited, well, the old inhabitant recalls that the owner was able to find someone to, to quote, to lay the ghost, as it was described at the time, to get rid of this ghost or ghosts from the property. And while he doesn't know quite how they achieved this, maybe they called in an exorcist. Maybe it was a late Victorian medium who helped them out. What he does know is that the operation cost a lot of money and it seemingly did the trick. It was money well spent because... The man with the three-cornered hat was seen no more. And in a chilling little postscript to our tale, the old inhabitant had a theory as to that ghost's identity. He remembers his mother often telling him how, when she was a servant at Greencastle, she could see from that spot on the hill the body of Rhys 
Thomas Rees hanging on the scaffold at Pen San. And that is the end of Old Inhabitants quotes. But who was Rees Thomas Rees and why was he hanging at Pen San? Well, Rees Thomas Rees was a gambler and he was also the last person to be hanged at that spot in Johnstown in 1817. An important date because that is when this man first appeared in the castle and that is when we know old inhabitant's mother was working there. And the reason he was the last person to be hung at this spot is because, frankly, carrying out executions there had become too unruly because it meant that those condemned to be hanged had to walk for a mile from Carmarthen Jail all the way to Johnstown to be hanged. And that route, we are told, would be lined with a throng of spectators, a chaotic mob baying for blood as those found guilty travelled to their final destination in this world, at least. And as such, that spot, that spot where Rhys Thomas Rhys was last seen hanging, has, unsurprisingly, long been associated with the ghosts of those who came to a nasty end on that hill. One of which, it would appear, ventured into the nearby Castell Moyle. And while that ends the tale of the man with a three-cornered hat, what of this finely dressed woman who was also in the castle, not to mention the other spooky events which have taken place there over the years that we haven't touched upon on this episode? Well, I guess they'll have to remain as mysteries for some other time. And if you don't want to miss any of the upcoming ghost stories, and if you've enjoyed this episode, then, as always, please consider hitting the subscribe button. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can now treat me to a coffee via my website, or you could just leave it a quick, nice review or give it a thumbs up or five stars or whatever the options are on whatever platform you are consuming this on. If you'd like more Ghosts and Folklore, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram. And as well as a podcast, I've also written a number of books on similar weird and wonderful subjects, which are available from all good bookshops offline and on. And as I shamelessly mentioned earlier in this episode, one of them Ghosts of Wales accounts from the Victorian archives does feature the original newspaper accounts used on this episode, as well as that reproduction of the engraving of Castell Moyle, which sparked this entire investigation. And on that note, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian am Rando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast, beaming to you from Wales to the world. Until next time, no star. <laughs> <laughs>